episode 39 with Jeb Stewart Johnston. In today's episode, Jeb and I talk about his recent writings on tribalism and its impacts within the nutrition landscape. We also talk about how it can be helpful to quote unquote, not have a dog in the fight when it comes down to choosing an intervention for a respective client. Jeb is an NYC-based nutrition coach who focuses on behavior change as a vehicle for transformation. His blog gives you a better understanding of eating habits and how it affects the mind. If you love the episode and would like to support the podcast, I would ask for you to please head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star review, leave the podcast a five-star review rather, and tell a friend about the podcast if you can. If you're here from Instagram, what's up? Thanks for joining us. And if you can share a screenshot of the podcast on your story, be sure to tag me at Austin Current. If you're interested in reading some of Jeb's work, his website is foodonthemind.com. Enjoy the conversation. So the first thing I wanted to kind of talk about today, one, I, I remember you, you posted about, uh, tribalism, um, we, you know, uh, just tribalism and how it is, gets involved with, um, kind of our sex of eating in terms of like these, these groups, um, of people and, excuse me. And so I want to, I want to touch on that for sure. Um, just the tribalism based around eating and kind of what that dogma brings, but also, First off, I wanted to mention and kind of just discuss this uh, thing that you posted this morning because uh, the psych skills uh, for fitness pros, because I was, I was pretty psyched um, to, to see that, to be honest. And so that's another reason why I like to get connected with just people outside my kind of original network is because you learn about these new things. And to me, any NSCA thing that isn't about training I'm stoked about like CEU. Cause I'm just like, dude, I can't take, I can't sit through another two hour lecture over. These are things that may contribute to hypertrophy. And it's like, mm, awesome. Like who cares? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, kind of talk about that. Like, cause you've been working with this, this woman for the past year. Um, your post said, so what's that? How's that been? Yeah, so um, Dr. Lisa Lewis, uh, she's a PhD in um, in uh, psychology. She specializes in sports psychology and also addiction. Um, she's also married to Tony Gentlecore, who most people, I think, in the fitness sphere would know. Uh, used to work at Crusty Performance, and now he works on his own. But um, so I have been wanting to attend. They do. They occasionally do a little uh, group, uh, seminar that's about like integrating psychology and training. And I could never make it to one of those, but she was speaking at the fitness uh, summit in, um, Kansas city last year. So I went almost hundred percent really just to see her. I've been before. That's where I actually met Nick. Who's our mutual friend. I was going to ask that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we met when he was like 12 years old and I uh, showed up there and all wide eyed and bushy tailed. And then he came to New York city to visit and walked around, you know, he's now he's a, now he's a sage, uh, grown man. Um, but so I went there just really to primarily see her and, and uh, sorry to speak. And she talked a lot about, uh, motivation, self-determination theory, which is something that I have grounded a lot of my, um, uh, development in nutrition coaching on. And, uh, 
I just said, I said, you know, I don't really know what you do in terms of working with people, but, but I'm looking for a kind of mentorship in this world, in the, this idea of, uh, of, of psychology, of uh, behavioral, um, you know, understanding. And so we started off, we just kind of did a call and we talk uh, now twice, twice per week, our sessions, um, or twice per month, I'm sorry. And she's become a mentor and then and, and, uh, really my development in the last year uh, between her, between Dr. Ben House, between uh, stuff with Pat Davidson. Um, it's just like I've just completely, uh, my worldview is blown up. Uh, but she just released this this course that I did uh, probably like four months ago or five months ago. I, I did like a, a little test run of it for her. And it's basically she put together this like, I guess, Cliff's Notes of of behavioral psychology for personal trainers. And it's incredible. Uh, she runs over self-determination theory, which is kind of where we develop most of our sports psych motivation from. Uh, that was DC and Ryan's thing. And it just kind of what's internal motivation, what's external motivation, how to people, how to move clients along that motivation continuum, um, how to give them autonomy, teach them to be kind of better, um, better self motivated and get what you want in the end, which is, is their buy-in. Uh, she works, uh, part of it goes into um, trans theoretical model of change, which is when are people really ready for change? You know, it, only about 20% of change occurs, change behavior occurs in action phase. So how do we get people to move along that? Um, and then uh, motivational interviewing, which which a lot of us in the, in the nutrition sphere use, which is how do you talk to people in a way to elicit uh, better responses than yes, no. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, and it's all contained in this thing. It's really an awesome course, uh, really moves along well. There's lots of little interviews with, with fitness professionals in there. Um, and the CEUs and it's a great deal. I think it's, I think it's doing it for like 499 or something right now, which, yeah, which is nuts for one, what it is, because you're not going to find much about this stuff because, um, you know, I have some colleagues that I'm in touch with and, uh, you know, whether, you know, one of those has a PhD in uh, behavioral psychology and stuff. And so, you know, she'll talk about uh, some of these things, but they're not really out there um, for personal trainers, especially mainstream. Like you almost have to either know someone or kind of know about like some underground course. That's kind of like this hidden gym that, you know, kind of sells itself and there isn't much marketing behind it or something. Like it's just, it's not something that I've, I've gotten much of in my extensive background of education. Um, right. which I, which I feel like is so important because the hardest thing, cause I mean, I think if you ask most trainers and especially within like kind of the evidence-based sphere or anything like that, but even most trainers outside of that whole, um, the whole thing, that whole community of, of people is the big thing being adherence. And I think we all understand that, but it comes down to the fact of working off of people's psychology. And as you said, like, I think you said that only 20% of people are really in that stage where they're actually kind of ready to, to start, um, to get going. So I guess what, it, what was the biggest thing for you in that course that you're using, like that you've seen the biggest shift within your practice? Well, to be fair, a lot of the stuff is stuff that I was already kind of working on. Um, and I, I and I'm working one on one with her, so like I'm getting a deep dive into stuff, you know, all the time. Um, but the, you know, I mean, I mean, the real the real answer is is uh, 
the the stuff that really has affected me the most isn't um, what I'm working on with my clients. It's applying all that stuff to myself, right? Well, yeah, because yeah. That's, you know, it's it's saying like, okay, I'm talking the talk. Am I walking the walk? Am I utilizing these same things? Um, so for me, it's 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 been. Um, honestly, the funniest thing is, is my big dive right now. I'm doing a presentation at Ben House's thing next week. We all, everyone that's attending has to. Um, and it's, it's my research is, is um, how does, or, or does, is motivate, I'm sorry, is, is mindfulness a, a reasonable intervention in a fat loss uh, protocol? And I'm doing a, a talk at um, Inland Empire Fitness Conference in, in Spokane in May that is uh, about dialectical behavior therapy as an intervention for fat loss. And dialectical behavior therapy uses a lot of motiva- uh, I'm sorry, mindfulness uh, within um, their uh, uh, teachings. So that actually has been my big um, change is, is focusing on a cognitive oversight, which utilizing like macros or, or something like that for nutrition clients. Uh, but more so I've, I've come to focus on this behavior stuff because I think without that base, anyone can, can go for 12 or 26 weeks or even a year white knuckling it and, uh, see these changes in, in, in weight. But if those behavioral bedrocks aren't there, um, I think that's where the failure of the industry has been in diet for 50 years or, you know, whatever, whatever it's been weight watchers or Jenny Craig or, or keto or whatever you want to do, you can see fat loss. People do, they just don't maintain it. And why is that? There's a behavioral component that we're missing. And I think that's where this thing, things like this course can come in such value. Yeah. Nice. What, what, what have you been seeing with the, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, ask you about the, uh, the Ben house retreat. Uh, after you go, um, just, I'm a big fan of Ben. I saw him, I saw him speak here in Denver. Um, that would have been 2018, I believe 2000, maybe early, early 2019, probably actually it was, yeah, early 2019. So, um, yeah, but I, I, I was a big fan and I've been a f- big fan of him since, um, after that talk. And, uh, so yeah, like I, I'm eager to know though, what have you been finding within that research you've been doing for that presentation is just like pre-limit a little bit for me. And like, have you, is it something that we can actually see work or? So, so yeah. And no, the, so I don't, I don't come from a real science background. I was a, uh, uh, a hairdresser in the fashion industry 15 years. I was a songwriter. I was, uh, so, um, the hard part for me has been starting to understand how to read research and, um, the other hard part is that the more you dive into these worlds, the more you go, oh, yeah, there's not a simple answer <laughs> to anything. So does mindfulness in research show promise? Yeah. And no. So I can pull one study that says like, oh, there's no no impact on fat loss by utilizing mindfulness. Okay, but let's see what these other things are that could be influencing it. Uh, okay, well, yeah it was 50 guys at the vet that at the VA that all have PTSD. Okay. That's a tough sample size. You know, like there's a lot of other stuff going on. Okay. Well, let's look over here. Mindfulness. Did it, did it impact fat loss in this? Well, no, but, but you know, this went, these women went from 20 binge episodes per month to zero. Well, behaviorally, obviously there's a huge impact, right? Um, but if that didn't impact fat loss, what could we do then? Well, maybe, maybe it's the mindfulness 
combined with this cognitive impact of, of some counting points or calories or macros or whatever you want to use. Um, so, and nothing, I don't, and, and so a good friend of mine is also doing this and we talk a lot about this. The more I dive into the, both the research and the practical side of things, the more I see that, that nothing really works in isolation. Right. Right. Like does training make people lose weight on its own? No, but the people that maintain weight loss, um, you know, from like the look ahead study, any of these big studies, one of the cornerstones of their success is that they train. So people that don't train have a really hard time keeping that up. They're also probably going to lose a lot of muscle in that process. Right. So training is really important and nutrition is really important and behavioral psychology is really important. And, um, so all these things are important and so nothing, and, and everyone wants to sell their, their, their angle and it doesn't work on its own. Right. I think that's a good segue into the tribalism talk because that's, um, so I'll just kind of pull some pieces out of your, uh, your kind of your one article, but your two kind of, uh, daily bite articles on your, on your site that you kind of write on, um, that you posted on Instagram, which kind of really caught my eye, um, which made me reach out and be like, Hey man, let's talk about this a little deeper. Um, so to quote you, uh, from your article, when we wrap up our identity around our dietary choices, we dismiss critical thinking and we become mouthpieces for bias. And then you later say, we need more critical thinking, not more gurus and food tribes. So to pull from this statement, I want to ask you, first off, kind of just to lay the, the groundwork, what is your advice towards improving the ability to critically think um, on behalf of kind of the everyday layman person to not get wrapped up in these kind of single efforts towards selling you? I think it's, it's questioning, kind of questioning everything, right? Not, not, not being necessarily um, skeptical or, or pessimistic or anything like that, but saying when someone says something like, does it pass the smell test? Mm -hmm. And, and that actually, that was just like realization I had when I was walking my dog the other day. And so I was like, it's the, 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 the more you read, the more you research, the more you go into this stuff, it's just your sense of smell gets better. Right. Like, like this, the smell test is, is always a good, like, you know, trusting your gut is, is, is important. It just becomes more, um, more focused as, as we delve a little bit more into the, the research part of it. Um, and so for people that see stuff, like don't fall for a lot of like, words a lot of um things that make you say oh my god it makes you know it was like paleo paleo was pretty great in a lot of ways but not because of any of the reasons that people did it people did it because they thought cavemen ate like this right. and you know i remember when paleo first came out i was like i actually like this idea but i don't want anyone to ever talk about it because i can tell right here that all of this is bs <laughs> this is just not it doesn't add up um, and the same thing with like keto, like keto has tons of practical applications. I mean, just in, in, in traumatic, you know, brain injury, um, in a, a lot of developmental uh, disorders, especially in children, but ad libitum diets, like as a, a method of fat loss, like, yeah, it'll work, but, but don't, don't buy it on, on the premise that people are selling it at. 
as you know, and, and it's hard, especially when when everything that people put out looks like it's a it's a, a Science Today article or whatever. Like when the guy's name is Doctor Whatever, you're like, oh well, I trust him. He's a doctor, and you don't realize that he's a doctor in like you know some made up science from a Hawaiian university or whatever. But but the guy put in the years, so we're supposed to trust him, right? Um, so I would just cross reference. I would just think, and at the same token, you know, that's where the tribalism thing kind of comes in. It's like, are you buying this because it makes you feel good about being a part of something or are you buying it because it actually is something that's going to help you? Yeah. And I like, I like that because that transitions, transitions us right into kind of like the continued part of what I wrote down here. And that's, you go on to say in your continued article that tribalism isn't necessarily the problem itself, the, the dogma is. And so find a tribe that supports your values through shared interests, not the one that promotes their agenda. So from your time working as a nutrition coach, um, what tends to be the toughest tribe you've come across? How do you then effectively change someone's mind there? So two part question there. The first part, essentially like what has been the toughest tribe that you've run into? I'm just curious on this. Um, in terms of someone coming in, applying to work with you, um, you had to kind of dismantle their way of like tribal identity a little bit. Um, I think, well, I mean, I also work in New York city, so I get like uh, a ton of, um, not a ton, but like I have a few people come to me that are like, you know, live, have been living on like juice fasts and, um, you know, carbs are, are the devil and really into, like in New York, everyone does yoga. Everybody, like every single person on the street has a yoga mat at all times. <laughs> and, you know, yoga mat, stretch pants, smoking a cigarette, like the whole thing. That's amazing. Yeah. But they're worried. Yeah. They're worried about the toxins in dairy while they smoke a Newport. Right. <laughs> but, um, so I think the biggest is, I think low carbs always a tough one. Okay. Um, anyone who comes from a really low carb. Now, the interesting thing is most of the time is once you have them start tracking and actually measuring, they're like, and I'm like, okay, we'll transition you out of low carb, right? So let me just start you off on like 100 grams of carbs a day. That's, you know, relatively low um, for a guy that's, you know, 165 pounds, you know, normal dude that, that does some resistance training. And then they're like, oh, wow, I started actually measuring and I'm eating like 150 grams of carbs today or 180 grams of carbs. It's like, okay, so you've never actually been a low carb adherent. Um, or there's someone who actually is. And um, this falls more in line with, I think, women where it's like, then they're overdoing it with fat, right? And they're not understanding why they can't lose weight because they're low carb. So, so to me, it's more... I think once, once, once I get to talking with people, it's never as hard of a sell because I'm always going to meet people where they are. I don't have a dog in the fight. Right. So I'm, you know, my big thing is like, I can't stand dogma. So if someone tells me like keto stupid, I'm going to be like, why? Yeah. If, it, if it's the best choice for this person, then let's do it. I, I don't care. Like I want to get the results and I want, but it has to be sustainable. So if that means we transition to something else, then cool. But um, again, because I don't have a dog in the fight, like it makes it a lot easier for me. Um, and, and I'm a, I, most of my work comes cause I'm a, um, uh, consultant with stronger you. So, which is a nutrition coaching company. And so a lot of people come to them and, and they, they come to me. So they, they kind of have an idea of what they see. Um, 
But on the other hand, too, is my kind of niche, my main clientele, which, you know, always throws people off to look at me. Uh, I would say my niche clientele is like perimenopausal women who have issues with emotional eating. Like that's who I like to work with. Um, you know, if people aren't, don't see me, I'm like five, eight, like two Oh five covered in tattoos and bald. So like people see me and they're just like, like what? And I'm like, yeah, that's, I like working with like women, you know, 45 year old women who, who struggle with eating emotionally eating their whole lives. What drew you to that originally? Nothing. That's, that's one of the biggest things I talk to about, uh, you know, people in this industry. I'm like, don't try to create your niche. Oh, I'm the same way. Like, yeah. I was going to work with BJJ fighters. I do BJJ. I was going to MMA fighter. I actually was, I was going to get these guys and I was going to, you know, I was going to work with, uh, the, you know, UFC guys. And I, was, and I, you know, I work with my, my coach, uh, coached in the UFC and fought a uh, pretty high level. And, um, so I had the in and, um, not who I enjoy working with. And it was like, it slowly distilled and all of a sudden, I started developing my model and the things that I'm good at, my skill set, who I like to work with happen to be the people that almost nobody else in the industry actually wants to work with. So it's actually great. It's but phenomenal. It's That's enjoy. Good. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, I work, my, my favorite client is the people that is the client that every other coach says they just don't want it. Mm-hmm. They, that's why they're not losing weight. They just don't want it that much. Oh, yeah, me, right. like, and which, and, 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 and it's not that that coach is wrong, right? Like, I think in coaching, just like with clients, is we have a skill set. And when we don't have the, the requisite skills to maybe help somebody, the only solution we can think of is that they just don't want it that much. I just happen to have this skill set that I work well with these people. And so I'm like, oh, okay, send them to me. Let me work with them. Like, are they going to lose, you know, all this weight? Maybe not. Like, my clients who've lost 100 plus pounds, like, those were not my hard clients. I didn't work hard for that. My clients who lost three or four pounds over six months, but are not having emotional eating episodes, who are not um, finding themselves, uh, you know, racked with guilt and, and shame over what they ate last night. Those are, those are the clients that, that are harder to work with, but those are the ones that bring me the reward. Right. I love that. And I, I'm, I'm a similar thing. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've never really resonated with in the kind of the whole business uh, mastermind or business coaching community of, you know, finding your, your niche or finding who do you exactly want to work with? And then we'll tailor everything to that. And it's I'm like, I just don't, one, if when you're early on, you're going to take anyone, like, don't lie to me. If you don't, you're stupid. And <laughs> You know, like you're just dumb. And then at the end of the day, like you're probably, it's the same reason. I think this is clear as day. And how many people in my life I've talked to who went to school originally to become a physical therapist and work with athletes. None of them are physical therapists. None of them work with athletes. And I did the same thing. Freshman year, go off, uh, enter kind of like a pre-PT route. And I'm like, oh, I want to work with athletes. And then you, you get into it. Maybe you shadow your first physical therapist and you're like, fuck this, this is dumb. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a huge, that's a parallel in itself, but I think it's clear as day. Um, we don't know what we want to work with. I, we don't know who we want to work with. And I, you just, it clicks at the end of the day. Like it just clicks when you start working well, with like, that person. Who's, who's your core client? Now? Cause if I like look at your social media, when I think like I started following you, totally separate, not, like, mm-hmm. not knowing Nick or anything, because 
I think it was like a prime fitness thing. And I was like, Oh, this guy's like a bodybuilder. Like, oh, okay. like one of these evidence-based bodybuilder guys. And I'm like, I like training for hypertrophy. So I'm always like looking for tips and hints. So to me, that's, I would say like, Oh, he probably works with like young, like bodybuilder types. Yeah. Not so much anymore. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So I work mainly, I'd say my favorite person to work with similar to kind of your subset population you love to work with. I, I think 30s to 40s, uh, male um, or female, I just tend to attract more male with my demeanor and uh, content. But I love working with males, females in their 30s and 40s, people that they maybe were an athlete uh, in the past, but really got out of the swing of things. Um, and at, at the like, through all of the shit that they see every single day, they're just so confused on what they need to give a shit about and understanding the principles, um, to get them to where they want to go. And so I would say, yeah, those are, those are my people, the people who are kind of just severely detrained, demotivated, um, outside of their, their wheelhouse, as far as I'm just stuck, I'm lost. I don't know exactly where to, I don't know where to go. Like I keep trying, but I just, I'm lost. Um, cause I, I love seeing those. I love getting those kind of those aha moments from people and, getting people into consistent, you know, consistent routines. And I, I love seeing, uh, you know, people in their thirties and forties gain this whole new outlook on life because their physique is completely transformed in a matter of, you know, six to 12 months, which I, to someone who's never gone through a transformation or kind of seen this play out, that may seem like a long time, but it's not like, that's not long at all. It's so short. It's such a short amount of time because I've watched people grow into different individuals, like better, more effective, happier, kinder, improved body composition, stronger, leaner, like everything in a matter of six to 12 months. And that's just for me to be able to work with people and do that. Like, that's awesome. Um, so that's kind of my favorite. Uh, I don't really work with uh, many competitors anymore. I definitely did back in the day. Um, but I think I like, I, yeah, I just like taking that, that, you know, the principles that, you know, principles of hypertrophy or principles of uh, proper training execution and stuff like that. And um, really kind of getting into the, the nitty gritty advanced details of program design without them knowing about it. Um, so like I'll send a program over, for example, I'll work, you know, tirelessly on this program. And when I send it over, it's just like, yeah, okay. And then it just, everything starts to click. And to me, it's like, I love the reaction of, yeah, all right. This kind of, you know, whatever. I'm not very excited. This didn't look very hard. And then things just fall into place. Like, their body comp starts to improve. They start to recomp. They're staying away from injury when they never have before. They say like, I've never felt this good while I've, I'm losing, you know, when I'm going through this, you know, when I'm low calories, I've never been able to train this hard, but feel good and recover. And it's just like, that gets me like, that's what I love doing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's that it's, it is funny. Cause I think about like a client who I'm working with for like a year and I'm like, God, it's already been a year. Like this is seems like nothing. But, you know, maybe they lost two pounds a week and all of a sudden it's a hundred pounds down. Yeah. You're like, you're a different person. Yeah. It's wild, man. I, um, so I wanted to pull back a little bit and just talk about 
not having a dog in the fight, because I think that's super crucial. Um, and this is something that I actually brought up on a round table I was on with uh, Steve Hall. And um, Steve Hall is just one of those people that I think is very, I respect the hell out of him. One, I'll just point that out. But two, I think he's very just, he's very entrenched in the evidence-based community. He's very entrenched in, he's kind of the middleman and tends to be a, uh, a very good mediator between uh, industry professionals within kind of the evidence-based space. And so, you know, when I, when I see Steve Hall's name or, you know, I see his face, it's kind of just, I resonate or I, I'm make the connection of like, okay, evidence-based that's you're in that you're in that community. Like you're almost like the, the middle of that. Um, and one thing I was saying to him was, or kind of bringing up was sort of this dogmatic religious nature of that community. And parts of it that I really, really don't identify with and don't agree with. And that's kind of a, a place where I, I see myself as, as an evidence-based practitioner, but I'm once removed from the community itself. Um, and so not having a dog in the fight, when you see a lot of you know, tireless arguments over the nitty gritty stuff. That's just like big picture. Does this really matter? Like, let's kind of draw back, right? Like let's, what does matter, but continuously over and over day after day, we're just having these battles as practitioners with each other, which don't end up helping anyone else. Um, and that you end up having a dog in the fight is what I'm saying. And so you get things like these buzz, you know, like keto, for example, or um, intermittent fasting, or any of these things that are like I'm, like, I'm like you, like, I don't have a dog in the fight, like, whatever you come to me, what are your preferences? What has worked in the past? What do I think is going to work from my experience? And what can I put together that I think is going to get us success? And like, I don't give a shit what that is. Like, it could be something that someone I respect heavily says it's nonsense. But if it gets this client success, like I'm stoked um, and I could care less. But I think it's important for people to understand it's important not to have a dog in the fight. So where it's very easy to take sides, I think it's very important not to. And I wanted to kind of get your take on, because you brought up the dogma, you, you brought up not having a dog in the fight. And I want you to kind of like expand on that a little bit and what advantages as a practitioner that can have. Yeah, I mean, we're probably not going to get rich thinking like this, right? Right. Because it's a lot easier to come out with a simple story and say, no, this is the line in the sand. Um, you know, the, most of the evidence-based fights, I like, it's cool. I like those guys having those fights because um, they don't, like, does volume versus intensity really matter for the normal person who, you know, like, if I tell them to go to three RIR, eruption reserve, for, like, is that person like ever going to get there? God, no. But for the competitor who is a world-class and is looking for actual optimal results, it does matter. And so cool, have those fights, let that stuff trickle down to me. And then I can go like, all right, you're going to do, you know, two sets to failure because you don't even know what failure is. Right. And so I think in that same vein, when we talk nutrition or we talk, um, because nutrition is more my wheelhouse, um, you know, the arguments like, uh, so Eric Helms is speaking at, at Ben's thing. Unfortunately, he's coming the week after me, but like he was doing a, a talk and, and, you know, he, we were talking about like a, a protein timing, for instance, like 
Um, you know, protein timing was the most important thing in nutrition science when it came to hypertrophy for like five years. You had to hit your um, your protein throughout the day. So you kept your most muscle protein synthesis high throughout the day. You were elevated. You didn't fall into catabolism. And um, you had to get your workout shaken within 30 minutes after working out or you'd lose everything. And then all of a sudden we found out like, oh, guess what? Doesn't matter. Which if we'd have actually thought about it from a realistic standpoint versus you know being so caught up in the mechanistic data we would have said like oh sure 25 grams of whey protein isolate will absorb and will be in the body at this point in time and therefore it you know muscle protein systems were elevated for you know 45 minutes to, to an hour and a half so then yes we need to have it in at the end of our workout nobody said you're probably going to eat a chicken breast which is going to break down slower you're probably going to have um, you know, some potatoes and uh, a little bit of butter, whatever. It, it, and so our food doesn't exist in isolation. And so I think that the important thing that we have to remember about what science does, and I love this explanation, science knocks down pins. Science is not there to prove anything. Science is there to disprove things. And I am not smart enough to come up with the science stuff. Like I am not going to be running any research. I am not going to be out there, but there are guys that are. And, you know, Schoenfeld and, and um, guys like Helms and they're, they're, that are out there doing this work, I appreciate the hell out of them because they're creating that stuff. And, and I think it's for guys like us that understand what they're saying and understand. And, and, and I've, that's why I'm spending so much time with, with this project with Ben is learning how to understand research. It, it's my job to distill that and be able to, like, create practical applications to people and like you said, big picture, mm -hmm. you know, if we can do that, we can take, because no, but none of my clients are going to listen to Steve Hall and, um, and, and you talk about, you know, whether or not volume or intensity matters or whatever your guys' conversation was in the round table, because they're just going to go, they're like, I don't understand what any of these words mean. Right. <laughs> and so for us, we can say, okay, the cool thing, the takeaway is, is that it matters a little bit of people but probably not to you so let's let's work with what's going to do the best for you right now and where you are in your development and i think that's that's kind of where you know and not having that dog in the fight like you said to bring it full circle lets me go and listen to the arguments like if israel tells talking about like why we should be working you know an x reps and reserve we should be talking about you know the recoverable volume and then um listening to dante trudel talk about like mechanical attention is the most important thing and driving uh progressive overload all the time i can say like okay all these things make sense and they all exist on the same continuum when can i use these things and with who yeah i dig that man i really like that and yeah i think and why i brought up the steve thing um i just brought it up from the standpoint of yeah i, I think because it was at the very end like we had a very great conversation on that round table um it's very funny to me that people always think Steve and I don't get along, but we, we very much do. Um, but at the end of that, it was kind of, I was shedding light on the kind of the importance of remaining open-minded um, in not creating this, do your best not to create this team atmosphere um, or, you know, us versus them sort of thinking, because at the end of the day, I do agree with you. Like I'm much, I'm super glad those guys are having those arguments and those debates. Um, 
and we learn from them. Uh, so I'm very grateful for that. But at the end of the day, uh, kind of why I brought it up in that roundtable specifically was, man, we're just confusing the hell out of a lot of people when, when it comes down to it's my team versus your team. And it's at the end of the day, it's like, this isn't about your team or my team. This is about everyone else that's needing our help that pays us to, to help them. And I think a big confusion that a lot of people have about the evidence-based community and about uh, um, the scientific world or, or academia at all is that it's, that it is impervious to um, bias. I mean, I, I, I thought that, like I thought as I started working with more people that are PhDs, the, the, the gates were going to open up and there was this utopia where everyone was just there to learn and to, to present their best ideas. And, and then, you know, I, I was thinking I was reading Behave by Sapolsky and he's talking about like how um, a woman who ended up winning a Nobel Prize posthumously, when her stuff came out, it disproved one of the leading names uh, in the industry at the time um, of genetics. And, and so they just shut her research down. She didn't get her, um, uh, she didn't get tenure at the university. Like her career was ruined. And then like 20 years later, more research came out that like, oh, she was right all along. Um, and, and so we have to understand that no one is, is immune to their own bias, right? Like not at all. And it's yeah. not that it's bad. It's not a bad thing. Like you should believe in what you're working on, but we're going to promote what we believe in. And, and, and then especially now there becomes a monetary game to it. A lot of times we double down, but I, I think, and again, I think most the, the team thing and, and. Like what I said, I think I made a later post that was kind of a counterpoint to it. It was like tribalism isn't necessarily bad if it, if it works to your benefit. Because like, let's like CrossFit. Like, yeah, it, there's a lot of things that I take issue with CrossFit, but it got people in the gym. Oh, hands down. And they yeah. went because it was their tribe. And like people that never wanted to work out were in the gym doing this stuff. And that's pretty cool. So it's like, there's good and bad. Yeah, I brought that up actually in that same roundtable when I brought up the teams. Um, and again, like I, I really enjoy having this conversation, uh, which is why I brought it up. Um, again, I'm very, I'm very much uh, identify as an evidence based evidence based practitioner. I think, I, you know, I'm very much in that community um, as a whole. So I just like I just really enjoy having these conversations. So um, I brought up in that round at the end of that round table is kind of like, that's, that was my counter argument was, you know, if you take the consensus right now within this community that we live in and I, I brought up CrossFit, I was like, if you bring up CrossFit right now, you're going to get so much heat. And like, if I, if I came out and like actively supported CrossFit in this community right now, that would not go over well initially unless someone and then you started actually reading and, and then you read that it's i'm talking about its importance in getting people active getting people in a community getting people within a tribe that matters to them and is that catalyst for them to create change which then typically after someone gets their first or second injury within crossfit they tend since they already have been exposed to resistance and barbells and being in a gym environment, they tend to get into strength training. So it's a catalyst to kind of get people in to this group setting that is a community 
where they're being motivated by their their teammates and their their friends and colleagues maybe or whatever um and that's kind of where my counter argument within all of that kind of came from is let's more or less just try and be less critical over things that even if it doesn't have the most validity you know valid backing within the research we have like we have to see things from a broader scope when looking at people and getting them into doing product, you know, being effective within their, their nutrition or training. Yeah, and, and especially, and especially if we're in the hypertrophy world, because all, all of, all of the research it's doing is proving stuff that guys were doing 50 years ago mm-hmm. that people called them idiots for, you know, one of my favorite guys, this guy, Ryan LaCour is going to be helping down at Ben. He's, he's one of the, the coaches at this retreat or this, this research group. He's one of the um, teachers, instructors, but he has the greatest quote. He's like, he says, I'm a bro scientist. He's got no formal education. Dude's one of the smartest guys I know. He reads research. He contributes to research. Uh, he's high, got a high school education. He was a personal trainer. Um, and he's done tons of these PRI courses, like like in-depth, like DNS, like all these things. Um, but he says, I'm a bro scientist. And I love it because it's taking the piss out of this, like, you know, slam that we've heard for so long. And, and I, I think that's such a great explanation. It's like, I'm not a scientist, you know, but I'm going to use my ability to critically think just to try to read studies to try to understand the difference between observational and, and um observational studies and meta-analyses and, and um uh you know what's being done in in these things and being able to differentiate and, and make understand make myself understand at least at a base level and not being one of these guys who goes in and reads an abstract and, and reposts it because it fits my bias um, because, and, and I do, and I see it, and I, and I see it with friends of mine and, and people I respect. And, um, you know, that's one of these things, like you said, people think you guys dislike each other. I was like, the biggest arguments I have are with people that are close friends of mine. And it's over like a minute thing. If people heard us talking, they'd be like, ah, oh, these guys. And it's like, no, we're arguing over something that's stupid to anyone else. But, but for us, it's important. But we find common ground. Yeah, there's tons of common ground. And again, Huge respect. I, I, I just bring up Steve just because we had this specific conversation. I think it's time. I could have brought up anyone really. Um, he was just kind of who came to mind because we've had this conversation. But yeah, I mean, to second kind of the critical thinking aspect of things, I think I obviously asked that earlier. And to kind of progress on to what your answer was, I, I think the, the more I've surrounded my, myself with as far as diversity of opinion, diversity of uh, train of thought, diversity of background, of education, um, culture, everything, the better I've had to get at critical thinking. And the longer, obviously, the longer you're in it, the longer you're exposed to something, the better, hopefully, you're going to get at critically thinking. But it does come down to learning how to ask better questions and keep I usually say stay curious because um, I think staying curious about anything at any time, like everything at any time is, is a good way to kind of go through life. Um, so if someone says something to you, it's okay. I, in my head, I'm always like, stay curious. So if someone says something to me, I'm just like, okay, what am I curious about in which, you know, out of what you said? So if it's something nutritional, um, like recently I had, um, I forget who it was. But they brought up, they were like, have you heard of the, the fuck it diet? And I'm like, hmm, I haven't. And in my head, there was like, I honestly, because 
again, like, like we said, you can't, you can't not have a bias. And in my head, I'm just like, that sounds stupid. But then I didn't want to say that, you know, because I didn't want to say that. So I'm just like, I let my, you know, I let that stay in my head. I'm like, that sounds dumb. Um, but instead of saying that sounds stupid, I, I tried to ask and inquire like, well, what is the, what's the framework? What do you, what's the framework of it? Which then I think when I broke it down more and more and started asking your more questions, it honestly was a lot of like, it, it, again, ad libitum, it's intuitive eating. It's basically fuck what all the other diets say and just do whatever. And I'm like, mm, okay. You know, maybe there's like the 0.001% of population this may work for, but like, well, and like if we look at the, you know, the big diet, you know, uh, um, division for me is this, this body acceptance movement and this more or, or weight neutral, less than body acceptance, but weight neutral side and the people that believe that we can actually affect weight loss. And, and um, most of my practice really probably identifies more with what people would call weight neutral because I'm working on behavior change, but I will utilize a cognitive aspect to try to, to manufacture weight loss as well, because I do think it is possible. And I do think it is sustainable. I, so I don't agree with this idea that it's not possible. And I think the evidence has shown, I mean, in, in large studies that it is possible and it is sustainable. But I think if I had gone in tribally and said like, no, fuck those guys, like they're, they don't believe that it's possible. They can't be doing anything right. Um, I would be ignoring this huge swath of things like mindfulness, um, things like acceptance. Uh, there's part of the research that I'm presenting is that an acceptance-based strategy showed considerable weight loss in compared to just traditional um, uh, um, weight loss therapy. So like, if they, you know, they gave, basically gave these people, there's two groups. One group, they said, hey, eat between these many calories. They told everyone, eat between these many calories, this much fat. And then um, one group got acceptance-based training. And the acceptance-based group lost considerable amount more weight, um, not by doing anything other than accepting the state they were in. And that is a weight neutral approach. And so I think if we ignore things, we, we can, like you, like to your point, we can potentially miss out on a lot. And then the other thing is, is that people will just like you if you don't tell them to fuck off when they tell you something, right? If you're curious and ask someone about something, they'll be like, wow, this is actually a person that I like because they want to know about me, which I don't ever think is a bad thing. It's never a bad thing. And that's, that is essentially, um, I, I had a couple more questions. That's essentially the, the, one of the two that I had was how do you effectively change someone's mind in your eyes? And so in my eyes, the first step is to listen. Cause if you don't listen to the person, you've automatically shut them out. Like think back to, for those listening, think back to any time that anyone's ever dismissed something you said, how did that make you feel? Did you feel great about it? No. Did you probably thought that dude was a total dick and, or it was a professor and you're like, ah, oh, there's, you know, they suck. I hate them. Um, and then you didn't want to listen to anything else they ever had to say, essentially. <laughs> um, and so I, I think the first thing that I would, that comes to my mind is essentially learning how to listen allow them to explain and come to a point where you're able to find common ground because I think within that common ground, you're able to really find where you need to go next because you may tear down a lot of those walls of maybe whatever tribe they're in, a lot of what they've been told, they may not actually believe as much as they're just reciting 
Um, so I, I wanted to ask you that question of how do you, how do you like in your eyes, how do you effectively change someone's mind? I mean, I think you're spot on. Um, the, you know, the, the big learning experience I've had is um, you can't kill people's teddy bear, right? Like, I mean, everyone has a teddy bear and, and sometimes you don't even know what it is, but their teddy bear might be that they're aligned with, you know, paleo because, um, I mean, who knows? maybe their best friend died and they did CrossFit together and paleo was a thing. And if you go in and you saw paleo, you just lost them, right? Like you're never getting them back. But if instead you come in, like you said, you listen and say like, oh, so what is it about, you know, the paleo diet? You're like, oh, well, you know, I loved that, that I could, um, you know, focus on whole foods and, and not, it kept me away from processed stuff. And you're like, actually, you know, yeah, that's, that's pretty great. That's exactly what I would do. I think this is awesome. Like, let's, let's work on that. Um, you know, or, or training, like I, I probably do some dumb shit and train that people think, like, because I really like, like, I've tried a lot of methodologies and. Um, I really like, you know, I, when I first was really getting into hypertrophy stuff and I started saying like, I think machines might be better than barbells. Everyone thought I was a raging idiot. I mean, I got, I mean, I, for someone who doesn't have a very big social media following, like I got some decent hate mail on Dude, people are so emotional about their, yeah. Yeah. Especially barbells. And then, and then luckily like the, the, the ties are starting to change and a lot of big names are like the huge guys don't use barbells. Like, you know, Dorian Yates used a hack squat. Like mm -hmm. if it works better for you work, you know, but there's a lot of things emotionally attached to emotionally attached to. So if you attack that, I think you're in trouble. Um, but I, and I think, you know, like, I think you distilled it perfectly. Like just listen, just, I, I really like that. Just be curious. Like if you're curious about people, they're going to like you and then you don't have to change their mind. If they choose to, to to believe in what you say, then they're gonna do, you know, they're gonna do what they you think is best. Right. So what's, yeah, okay, yeah. I I mean I I like that man, uh, and I think that yeah, it really piggybacks right off of um, my thought process was. I am curious to you, outside of our conversation topic today, what got you into this? Um, so have you always lived in New York? And what took you out of where you were into the fitness space? Um, so, so I'll, I'll run a, a quick, I grew up all over the place, moved all over as a kid. Um, never lived anywhere longer than two years until I moved to New York back in, Jesus, I've been here a while, um, nine years ago. Um, but uh, I, I moved here, I was, I've, been, I've been working in New York for probably 15 years. I was a hairdresser. Um, I worked in, before that I was a songwriter. I went to music school. Um, so I was a bartender, ran nightclubs. My wife, when we started dating, wanted me to have a normal job. So I became a hairdresser because her sister was, because I could audition for shows. I could play late, didn't have to get up early. I could wear cool clothes, checked all the boxes for me. I uh, was about 143 pounds when we met. Uh, we got married actually when, and I didn't start lifting until I was like 33. Um, and I was just, I was doing hair at a fashion salon downtown, worked with like supermodels and started working out with this, this buddy of mine, this guy, Sean Heisen, uh, who was the editor at Muscle and Fitness and Men's Fitness. And um, we just became fast friends and he just taught me everything about training. And I, I fell in love with it. I'd always been interested in nutrition. Um, and I tr slowly transitioned to be a trainer and then more into nutrition coaching. And um, that I, I'm solely in nutrition coaching now. Uh, but at the end of the day, I've just, I've been a student of behavior 
And that's what I focus on now. Um, the joke is that, you know, my mother's a psychologist at, at Hopkins in Baltimore. And I ran so far away from what she did because I wanted nothing to do with it that I literally now, I mean, my, my, I started studying dialectical behavior therapy and actually mess, messaged my mom and called her and said, Hey, do you have any books on this? She's like, I actually did a year long internship with the woman who created dialectical behavior therapy. And she's like, uh, yeah, awesome. The, yeah. She's, she's like, I'm one of the only clinical directors who runs a, a DBT system on the East coast. And I was like, so it's come full circle. <laughs> like, <laughs> what you, you ran know, away it's, from it's, your it's now. At, yeah. yeah. yeah it's, I'm fascinated by human behavior and I love it. And, um, and you know, I think this, one of the things is people try to chase their passion, but I think if you just work hard, uh, it'll find you. And I found my purpose, which I think is so much more important. Yeah. I think there's a sense of finding what I, I yeah. And I, we speak a lot about passion and kind of the current landscape of what, what we do. Um, and then kind of where all the self-help books are and kind of all of that motivational, um, side of things are. And there's a, there is a lot about passion and I haven't, I don't resonate much with the passion thing either, or, the why or really any of that stuff as much as I resonate with, am I challenged? Am I contributing? Am I good at this? Do I find enjoyment in it? Okay. And can I make, does it pay my bills? Then I, okay, sweet. Right. Yeah. That was the other big hate mail thing is I, uh, I, I, I've come out and said that I think finding your why is a giant steaming pile of shit and that no one really actually needs to do that in order to change. And Talk about teddy bears. I ripped up a lot of <laughs> teddy bears with that one. What was the biggest <laughs> counter argument? People were like, well, see, everyone said like, no, but this, my why is this, this, and this. And I'm, and my thing was like, you didn't need to find that to get to where you are, right? If I'm going to go into war, do I want to go with the special forces guys who've just been practicing the what and how for the past 10 years every day? Or do I want someone who's been spending the last 10 years thinking about why they should be going into battle? Like I want someone who's practicing, not who's thinking about stuff. So my argument, and people would say, but, but here's my why. And the why is always a survivorship bias, right? It's always, no, this is my why. This is why my company exists. It's like, no, your company exists because you didn't like your job and you wanted something else. Or, or Google, to, Amazon doesn't exist because he was trying to better the world through books. He just saw a, a hole and, and exploited it and started selling books. And then was like, well, oh, I can sell this other stuff. I already have this, this uh, distribution channel. Like nothing exists, but when we look back, everyone creates a great story about it and why they did this. It's like, no, you wanted to make money and you need the job or whatever. So I think I think it's hard, but a lot of people really they they want to have a magical story, uh, inception story, and they think that that developing that story, it's like people trying to develop their brand before they have a product. Like, you know, you've got a pretty logo, but there's nothing behind it. Romanticizing something that doesn't quite exist yet, or romanticizing something that exists because you just were desperate essentially. And if, and if you're desperate, that's a great why. And the other thing is I, I would get on the evolutionary kick. It's like at the end of the day, the only real why is to stay along long enough to procreate. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the why, right? That is the why is eat food so we can move so we can make babies to push our gen like genealogy, the next rung down. What do you think? Um, last, last question here. I, I love that, man. And I think, yeah, we agree. We agree heavily on that. And as, as far as the, I think people get just get too lost in the passion and the why, because I know I did. And I felt somewhat sure. unsatisfied and 
empty because I never really had a good answer for people when they asked me that question. Uh, or I felt like I was the Debbie downer of the group because I was like, uh, nothing. I don't have one. Uh, I'm just, I woke up today and I'm here and I'm just trying to get through this and yeah, hopefully something positive comes out of it. And that was essentially like my answer. And now you have the purpose and the passion because you put the work in. Right. No, I think we, yeah, we both agree heavily on that. I, I just, I love that conversation. So the last thing I want to ask you here is um, I'm intrigued also by, so I just finished the book Range uh, by David Epstein, which is a phenomenal book um, for anyone listening who is looking for a next good read. Um, but it's all about um, finding range and kind of honing a skill set with diversifying essentially and gaining a lot of experience. Um, and it's typically the people that are outside that particular field who come in and revolutionize or find a fix for something that we haven't been able to cure or find a fix for in the particular industry. So um, stemming off of you coming from more of the fashion side of things, more of the singer song, like songwriter uh, side of things. Are there any things, anything that comes to your mind that you have a little bit different perspective on because you haven't spent your entire life within the fitness space as a coach? Yeah. Um, well, I, I'll tell you, my biggest thing is that I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict. I've been to uh, jail multitude of times. I've been to four rehabs. I spent four months in a rehab at one point. Um, uh, you know, mainly alcohol, but I, I did a lot of drugs too. And um, I've never had to lose weight. Uh, it's all been muscle gain for me. That's always been my struggle. Uh, I've never been through, I've never understood what it was like to be overweight or obese. Uh, but, you know, I've understood what it was like to, uh, to try and want something more than anything not be able to see that result. So for me, that's my experience. That's my, uh, that's the thing I bring uh, to people. And, um, that's, and I get, and I get to, I get into big fights with people too, that say like, Oh, food's not addictive. It's like, mm, I've been in rehab. I've been an alcoholic. Maybe there's not the same. I mean, it, it works on the, uh, still works on the same dopamine reward pathway. It, it still works uh, in the same things. And, I've been to rehab and I've seen the way people behave and I've worked with, uh, you know, probably a thousand plus fat loss clients and I've seen the way they behave and it's pretty eerily similar. So maybe it's not exactly the same, but from a behavioral standpoint, it, it is. Um, and, and I think by approaching things in that manner, it's helped me to, to gain perspective. Yeah. Uh, awesome, man. Yeah. I, I think too, it's easy to kind of come off and say, this is another reason why I think it's important to experience a lot of different people, a lot of different culture, a lot of different um, just overall experiences in your life is I think it's really easy to say from the standpoint of like, like me, I'm not a, a very addictive person myself. So it would be easy for me to say, well, like, oh, that's not addictive or oh, that's not that addictive. And it's like, yeah, but I'm not that like I'm, that I'm just, I'm that type of person anyway. So it's very easy for me to say that when there is all this ob observational data out there of like, or speaking from your behalf, it's just like, it absolutely is. So I, I think it's very easy on the behalf of like someone who d maybe doesn't have an addictive personality or hasn't struggled with something in the past to say something like that. 
Yeah. And, and it, it doesn't mean that, that you're any less qualified, right? As long as you have some, some compassion and some understanding of what, of that person, um, you don't have to go through, like, you don't have to be a dog, uh, to be a veterinarian, right? So you don't have to have been fat to help you with fat loss. Um, but you can be compassionate. You can understand where they come from because there's something in your life that you've struggled with. We all have. And I think that as long, and like you said, widen your horizons. I'm lucky. I live in New York city. Like I'm, I get to see every kind of person all the time. Um, but it's that, yeah, we just can't be myopic. We can't be stuck in our tribes. I dig it, man. I think that's a great place to end it. Um, I appreciate the conversation. I really do. And I thought it was a really good one. And I, it was exactly what I wanted it to be. It was somewhat random, but it stayed on track at the same time, which that's what it's all about. I thought it was a good conversation. So I, I appreciate your time. Um, so yeah, do the, do the normal stuff. Where can people find you? What do you want people to pay attention to? Um, my Instagram, Jeb Stewart Johnston, uh, Facebook, same thing. Um, and then my website is www.foodonthemind.com. Um, I have a little, like you said, daily bites. I'll do like a monthly thing. It's, it's newer. I just kind of put that together. Um, but it's how I do my, um, my daily writing practice really. And it's just stuff about food and behavior and how things tie together. And, um, that's where most of my content lives, but I bring everything over to Instagram too, because I think it's a, a cool medium. Um, I meet a lot of people like I met, you know, I met you through Instagram. So I love it for networking. Um, but yeah, man, it, was, it was great. I really appreciated this. Awesome. man. me too. Hey guys, Austin here. Thank you again for listening into the episode. It means a lot. If you can, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave the podcast a five-star review. This does help us grow and be found by others. Also, just wanted to mention, if you guys are interested in free education based around training and nutrition, be sure to check out physiquedevelopment.com backslash free education, where you'll find free downloads, videos, articles, etc. No strings attached. Again, thank you. Chat soon.